Turn in your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 6. We've been preaching through Galatians for a couple of weeks. Actually, more than a couple. And we've actually been in chapter 6 for a couple of weeks. And even in these verses for a couple of weeks now. And we're not done today. Galatians 6, verses 11 through the end of the book of Galatians, verse 18. See what with large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. This morning we had an infant baptism, and baptism is a sacrament. And few things have misled as many people in church history as the improper use of the sacraments. Sacramentalism is one of the great evils in church history. And sacramentalism is evil for a number of reasons, but chiefly because The action of man displaces the faith that pleases God. God is pleased to respond to faith and to use faith as a tool to transfer our souls from death to life. God is also pleased to use baptism in the Lord's Supper. But baptism in the Lord's Supper, being physical signs, can easily become an instrument whereby we think that we can be like Ken Nunn, those of you who are local, who looks into the camera, he's an injury lawyer, and he says, just like that. He snaps his fingers, and the idea is you come to him, and you're going to get money for whatever you suffered. And God is not subject to the sacraments and to the one who ministers them, so that when the sacraments are done... Just like that, a soul is transferred from death to life. Think of Tetzel, the one whose scandal, and it was Rome's scandal, don't ever think Tetzel was doing what Rome didn't want him to do, who said to the people who were grieving over the death of their loved ones and who may be in purgatory, according to the teaching of Rome and Tetzel, said that the minute you drop a coin into this little box here, a soul will spring free from purgatory. Just like that. And this has been the approach to the sacraments by many, many souls down through church history. Now, many of us were raised in what is loosely called evangelicalism. I was raised in Wheaton, which my dad referred to as the land of Goshen. And uh, in Wheaton, Mary Lee and I grew up in an 
Evangelical Church of Impeccable Credentials, College Church in Wheaton. Kent Hughes was the pastor until a few weeks ago. He retired. And so consequently, we were raised in a context where everybody had learned that sacramentalism was wrong, that you couldn't take baptism in the Lord's Supper and snap your fingers and just like that, you know. And so what did they do? Well, it's always our habit. We go from one extreme to the other. And so in evangelicalism today, nobody believes in the sacraments. Nobody has any view of the sacraments. Nobody thinks that God is pleased to work through water and bread and wine. Because after all, what does an evangelical say? God will be worshipped and those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so evangelicals do what? They say what matters is your heart. And then they proceed to cut the heart off from flesh and say, baptism doesn't matter. The Lord's Supper doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is your heart. And it sounds good, doesn't it? I came to Bloomington to minister at a church. When I got to that church, I discovered that there were many, many people in that church who had never been baptized, who regularly came and partook of the Lord's Supper. How does that happen? Baptism is the initiation rite that Jesus commanded. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is our Lord's command. Many, many people coming to the family meal who had never been marked with the family mark. How does that work? Well, one day I had time with the founding pastor and I asked him, I said, what's the deal with all these people in the church who haven't been baptized? He was Presbyterian. I knew he believed in baptism. He said, well, Tim, you have to understand the culture of southern Indiana. It's permeated with the Christian church. And the Christian church believes in baptismal regeneration, sacramentalism. The Christian church is just like Roman Catholics. They believe that the Lord's Supper and that baptism, just like that. Now, I'm not holding up a straw man argument. I know Jack Cottrell. And Jack Cottrell is the theologian of the Christian church over at Cincinnati Bible College, or whatever they call it today. He's a friend. And I asked him whether they believe in sacramentalism, baptismal regeneration. He said, yes. So don't think that I'm being unfair in how I characterize another church in town. I'm just telling you what they believe. doesn't mean everybody that goes there believes, but there are many of you here that don't believe some of the things I believe. And so here we have this permeating the culture of southern Indiana, sacramentalism, baptismal regeneration. And this founding pastor said to me, he said, so consequently, I tended to downplay baptism because I did not want to give any comfort to the error over here. And that's going to be your whole life. You're going to, have to see an error here and you're going to go, wow, and you're going to run off the cliff over here. That's how it always happens. And so there are many evangelicals today who don't believe that God is pleased to use flesh. He's pleased to use water. He's pleased to use bread. He's pleased to use wine. But you know what? God is pleased to have ordinances that He uses and that He promises to bless. And some of those ordinances are actually physical. 
You know? Water. God commanded it. And if I had up here wine and bread, we eat it. God uses that. And so you have the error over here of thinking that this water, you know, just like that. And the people who think that the error, you know that a Roman Catholic priest's central privilege is what? Again and again in the Mass to sacrifice Christ. And so these are the two errors. Sacramentalism and I don't know what to call it, but anti-sacramentalism or anti-incarnational faith. Incarnate means in flesh. Carne, flesh, Greek. So now... What's the point? Why am I saying this this morning? Well, I want to give you the context. That's a long introduction to a sermon. Don't worry, it'll be over quickly. I want to give you the context. And here's the verse I want you to focus your attention on this morning. Verse 15, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What was circumcision in the Old Testament? Circumcision was a sacrament. It was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. God commanded Abraham to circumcise his descendants, male descendants. And Peter t- or Paul tells us in the book of Romans that Abraham was circumcised after he was saved, if you will. That circumcision pointed back to something that had already happened, that God had caused to happen by faith. All right? And so when you come into the New Testament, the book of Colossians, it associates circumcision with baptism. In other words, the sign changes. It changes from circumcision to baptism. And that's the entire point of the book of Galatians. Those of you who have been here for two years, it's the entire point of the book of Galatians, right? That the stupid idiots in Galatia didn't get it. That it had changed from circumcision to baptism. Can't they get this? You know, it's baptism now. And you know what? It never says that in the book of Galatians. It tells them not to circumcise anymore, but it never tells them to baptize. Yeah, there's a verse or two that mention baptism. But you know what it says here? It says here, look at verse 15 again, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but baptism! But that's not what it says. That's what all the sacramentalists wish it said. Everybody wishes that we could, you know, deal with God just like that. You know? You stupid Galatians, don't you get it? It's changed. It's no longer circumcision. It's baptism. But that's not what it says. It says, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. You know, and we really don't like that. We really, really don't like the fact that we have to change. We really don't like the fact that the Holy Spirit has to operate on us, that we've got to get prepped and then cut and have a new heart put in us, and we're totally knocked out when it happens. We really don't like that because there's just no dignity to that. You know, I should be a participant, you know, 
And so what do we do? Well, we try to take the ordinances that God has set apart. We try to use them, you know, and we try to jack God around with the ordinances. You know. When you see that picture in the glossy Christian magazine that has a woman sitting next to frilly curtains with a beautiful cup of coffee and no children, no messy children's mess on the table, just frilly curtains and a nice clean table and her and her coffee mug, and she's reading the Bible, what does that tell you? If you have devotions, and as a matter of fact, if you buy the Bible that is pictured there in those devotions, you know, just like that. You know, you send your money in to Trinity Broadcast Network, just like that. He'll add his blessing. We have all these ways that we try to jack God around. But what the Bible says is, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And the book of Galatians is a battle for the souls of the believers in the Galatian church. And much of the battle centered on the meaning and purpose of the Old Testament ordinance of circumcision. And in order to understand it, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is an ordinance? This is an ordinance. What is an ordinance? Well, an ordinance is one of the tools that God commands us to use in our worship and in our devotion to Him that He promises that He will use adding His grace to it for the salvation of His people. And I'm going to do something this morning that I rarely do, but I'm going to do it this morning. And that is I'm going to read several of the questions and answers of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is part of our church's doctrinal constitution. Question 153. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us by reason of the transgression of the law? Here's the answer. That we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of his law. He requires of us repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. The diligent use of the outward means that he himself communicates to us for the benefits of his mediation. Question 154. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? Answer. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word and sacraments and prayer, all of which are made effective to the elect for their salvation. Question 155, how is the word made effectual to salvation? Effective. The Spirit of God answer makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effective means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, etc. So three of the ordinances that God has ordained for his people, his church, are the word of God in its reading, but particularly its preaching. All right. Prayer 
and the sacraments. Now, what is a sacrament? Well, again, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 162, says a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by God in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another, and to distinguish them from those that are without. Question 163, what are the parts of a sacrament? The parts of a sacrament are two. The one, an outward and sensible sign used according to Christ's own appointment. The other, an inward and spiritual grace thereby signified. Not created, signified. Question 164, how many sacraments has Christ instituted in his church under the New Testament? Answer, under the New Testament church, he has instituted in his church only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the ordinances of the church are all appointed by God and blessed by him in such a way that they don't have simply a natural power, but a supernatural power. And this is true of those ordinances that are sacraments. And it's also true of those that are not sacraments. Think, for instance, of prayer. Prayer is an ordinance of the church that we do not use simply to bring ourselves into conformity to the will of God. This is one of the errors of Reformed churches. We think we pray so that we'll become like God and think his thoughts. That's true. But is that what prayer is? Is that it? No, of course not. Jesus told the story of the importunate widow who badgered the judge and finally got her way. And then Jesus said, Luke eighteen seven, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Jesus also told the story of the man whose son asked him for bread and a fish and pointing out that the man, the father, gave the son what he asked He likened this to prayer. And Jesus said, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Apostle James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands us to ask God for what? For wisdom. Promising that when we ask, we will receive wisdom from God as long as we do not doubt that God will answer prayer. And so prayer is not simply a way to bring our hearts and minds into conformity with the will of God. It's also a way to move the heart of God to give good gifts, including wisdom to his sons and daughters. Prayer then is an ordinance. It's a tool that God has commanded us to use in our worship of him and that he promises to bless with his power, his grace, making it effective. And in this way, prayer is one of the ordinances of the church is typical of all the ordinances. Every one of them is commanded by God and every one of them. He promises to bless by his presence and power. We are commanded, for instance, to read and to preach God's word. And God promises to bless our use of his word in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. It says, for as the rain and the snow came down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We are commanded to set apart 
for the governing of the church officers who will lead us. And God promises to bless those officers and use them for the good of his flock. We are commanded by God to practice church discipline. And God promises to bless the discipline of his people with power and spiritual change. And if you think there's any other basis on which we ever do discipline of you, then trust in, in God and his power. You have no, no knowledge about discipline. It's absolutely impossible to get ourselves to do discipline when we meet as a board of elders. And the reason is because we have no faith that discipline will be used by God in our hearts and yours. And then we walk by faith, we do discipline, and God is pleased out of the ground to spring up life that will endless be. The ordinances of the church then are appointed by God. He promises to attend them and to bring His power and authority to bear behind them such that hearts and souls are changed. The ordinances are effective for the salvation of those who belong to Christ. So what do you think I'm saying? Talking out of both sides of my mouth, aren't I? I'm saying they're effective. I'm saying they're not effective. No, I'm saying they're effective and I'm saying you can't jack God around. How does it work? What exactly is the connection between our obedience in using these ordinances and the Holy Spirit's work through these ordinances, making them effective? Or, to be more specific, how close in time is the obedient practice of these ordinances and the Holy Spirit's blessing? Does it all happen simultaneously as the sermon is preached, for instance? Then and only then is when the Holy Spirit applies it to the individual's heart. Or does it happen both at the time you hear the sermon and also later that the Holy Spirit blesses the sermon with fruit? And if later, how much later is allowed? An hour, a day, a month, a year, a decade? Jesus in the parable of the sower and the Apostle Paul both refer to the preaching of the Word of God as what? As the sowing of seed. And so if the preaching of God's Word is similar to the sowing of seed, what does that teach us? Well, it may well teach us that there's a period of germination to the sowing of the seed of the Word of God, just as there is a germination period to plants. And that this period of germination is vastly different according to which seed is sown. Take, for instance, the lodgepole pine. The lodgepole pine pine cone often sticks to the tree and is so thickly covered by resin that the seed cannot escape to germinate. But in a forest fire, the cone is busted loose from the tree, the resin is melted or burned away, and the seed can escape from the pine cone to germinate, to bring forth new life. It takes the intense heat of a forest fire for the tree to reproduce. Similarly, plants like the raspberry and gooseberry have seed coats that are very hard, and sometimes it takes the intense heat of a fire to break the coat of the seed open so that germination can begin and new life can come forth. Is there an analogy here for the seed of God's Word that sometimes it only takes root and grows in our hearts when they are first prepared by fire? Say, for instance, the fire of persecution or suffering. Say, for instance, the fire of the death of a child. Say, for instance, the fire of bankruptcy. The fire even of incest and adultery. You see, the precise nature of the connection between the tools that God has given His church and the Holy Spirit's blessing of those tools with fruit is a mysterious matter that Scripture says almost nothing about. 
God is zealous for his own privileges, and he does not take lightly those who think they can snap their fingers and have God act. Whether the snapping of their fingers is the preacher preaching, the Christian praying, or the pastor baptizing. These are God's tools, and he will use them for his glory, not for ours. What happens when we try to use them for our own glory or benefit? Well, the prophet Balaam thought he could use his prophetic gift for his own personal benefit. And what did it get him? It almost killed him. And only his donkey saved him from death. Nadab and Abihu thought that they could use tabernacle incense for their own personal benefit. What did it get them? It says in Leviticus 10, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron, therefore, kept silent. These were his sons who had been killed. He shut his mouth. Simon Magus thought he could use prayer for his own personal benefit. And what did it get him? Well, we read in Acts 8. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no portion or part in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. The seven sons of Sceva thought they could use prayer for their own personal benefit. What did it get them? Acts 19, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish high chief priest, were doing this. An evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. And I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was being magnified. The Corinthians, how about Ananias and Sapphira? They thought they could use church offerings for their own personal benefit, lying about their offerings in order to look better in the church. And what did it get them? How about the Corinthians? They thought that they could use the Lord's Supper for their own personal benefit, using it to have a party and to demonstrate their wealth through their, in front of their brothers and sisters who were in need. 
And they failed to recognize that the table belonged to the Lord Jesus, not to themselves. And what did it get them? Well, Paul writes them. And he says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And then this little verse, so forgotten today, so forgotten by sacramentalists. It says this, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. In other words, they have been judged by God and made sick and even killed by God because they did not use the holy things of God as He commanded. The Judaizers in the book of Galatians thought they could use circumcision for their own personal benefit, and what did it get them? It got them this very public rebuke of the letter to the Galatians, still read, still preached around the world today, 2,000 years after it was written, sent, received, and read. The Apostle Paul thought he could use the church family meal for his own personal benefit. What did it get him? The Apostle Paul's, excuse me, the Apostle Peter was doing that. And it got him the Apostle Paul's very public rebuke in front of the church and to his face. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees joined the throngs of people who came to John the Baptist to be baptized. But when these Pharisees and Sadducees tried to be baptized, using the baptism of John to sustain their spiritual leadership and reputation for piety, what did it get them? This is what John the Baptist says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I could stop. I could not continue to read, but I'm going to continue. Listen to this. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, I was baptized in a Presbyterian church. I'm a member of the PCA. I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran. I'm a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran. I'm a Roman Catholic. I belong to the true church. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with water, and that's the true baptism. But that's not what it says. What it says is, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now let me ask you this morning, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire? Have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire? Have you fallen on your face before Jesus Christ and said, I'm a child abuser. I'm a thief. I'm a murderer. I'm an idolater. I'm an adulterer. Save me. Wash me with the blood of Jesus. 
Don't tell me you've been baptized. Don't tell me you're a son of Abraham. That doesn't mean squat to God. You say, oh, yes, it does. God said that He'd bless the sons of Abraham. Okay, it means squat to God, but that's all. Just squat. It is never sufficient for you to have the sign of the covenant if you do not believe in Jesus Christ and if you have not made your quit claim to that Christ if you have not been baptized by fire and the Holy Spirit. God will not share His glory with anyone. And although we have been commanded to read Scripture publicly, to pray, to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs, to eat the bread, to drink the cup of Christ's suffering and death until He comes again, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to preach the Word in season and out, to correct, rebuke, and encourage, although we have God's command to put these and other things at the center of Christian worship, the moment we think we can use these things for our own personal benefit or for the benefit of our own race or tribe or denomination or church or family, the minute we believe that we can force God's ban by any of these ordinances, even those that are called sacraments, God will make an example of us. Why? Because as God said to Nadab and Abihu's father Aaron after he struck them dead, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. God hates pride. And he is intensely interested in maintaining his own prerogatives, his own privileges. Not America, not the Jews, not the Presbyterians, not Rome. His. But man always wants to puff himself up and make things to be about him, not God. You think I don't understand this? I invented pride. Man thinks he is a self-determined creature. Oh yes, man is glorious. The ascent of man. Man wants to puff himself up. He thinks he's self-determined. But you know, really appearances are deceiving. Only God is self-determined. He says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Now, is that something to love? Can you love that? Can you love the concept that under the cross everything's level? Can you love that? Can you love the fact that God will not share His glory with you? Or me? Or the Pope? And of course not with President Bush. And not with a stock market. And not with a 100,000 megaton nuclear warhead. And not with global warming. And not with plate tectonics. And not with the universe's Googleplexed. It's all His hand. He made it. And if one of you believes, only one in this whole crowd, it's because He has touched you with His Spirit and He did it when He wanted, in the way He wanted. And He uses His sacraments and He uses His ordinances. But then He comes Himself to us and He says this.
Nicodemus came to him at night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, that's easy. Here's water. Huh? You know, here's water. You know, he said it, water. Listen to what he says. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And then the verse. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, Are you a teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Brothers and sisters, all through the Old Testament, the people of God are called the bride. And all through the Old Testament, God is the bridegroom. And when those people, despite his seeking after them and taking initiative with them, when they turn away from him, it's called what? It's called whoring after other gods. It could be called ingratitude. But it's not. It's called whoring after other gods. A faithful husband. And we go whoring after other gods. God's the initiator. God is sovereign over how He initiates and when He initiates. Yes, He has promised to use physical signs. He's promised to use the ordinances when we're obedient and use them as He's commanded. But God is sovereign over the changing of a heart. And it's humbling. It's absolutely mind-bogglingly humble to a little baby to come out the birth canal and humbling to the mother and humbling to the father. And that's the analogy that Jesus used when He told us we have to be born again. And there was nothing attractive about it to Nicodemus. Oh, man. That's pretty grotesque. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, dude, the Holy Spirit does it. And it's a mystery. And every single time you go to a church and you read on a blog and you hear people claim that you know, just call me. It's just like that. Whether it's Trinity Broadcasting Network and you're giving, or whether it's a Presbyterian who explains to you the doctrines of the covenant in such a way that you think when you baptize your children that they don't ever have to come back to church after they're confirmed. It's just like that. God says no. He says it's His Spirit who does it. And His Spirit will work when and how He wants. Okay? You get it? And you know what? That's humbling. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nicer if you could profess faith in Jesus Christ and we could dunk you? Or spray you? As a matter of fact, you know, why spray just one person? We could do the whole church at once. We have a sprinkler system up here. And for that matter, they got them super, super... Thumper, bomber, fire us, fire, fire, plane things. Yeah, 
Now, we could do all of Bloomington in a day or so if everybody came out of their houses. God shows himself holy. God does not listen to us snap our fingers. And it's humbling, but there's no way to get around it. And man, people, I see the fruit. I see this woman here. You know, her heart was changed what? Ten years ago? Eight? How many? Thirty-eight. And then ten years ago, you got a new change. Twelve? Eight? Okay. Stand up. And can it be that I...